Good morning. The Lord is risen. Hallelujah. This morning, I'm going to look at the greatest victory the earth has ever seen. It's more than just a historical event that we can look back on. Jesus defeated death. He rose from the grave. And his resurrection that we celebrate on this Easter Sunday is still changing lives today. That's right. This morning, I'm going to take a look at how military victories were celebrated and compare that to the procession the Apostle Paul gives that he gives thanks for. As we go through this, each of us has a decision to make. Who will be a part of God's victory procession? Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we just pause and just marvel that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains everything we can see and the stuff we can't see, created and loves us. So amazing. And you love us so much. Father, we just rejoice this morning that Jesus conquered death and rose from the grave. And as we just look at that, that story that the one that just keeps going on and on. Pray that you just open our hearts and minds to your love, your goodness, and what you would have us do with that message. And we ask in Jesus' name. So Jesus is crucified. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So what you see here, the same picture, different vintage. This one's probably late 1800s. It's a It's quite a while back. This was before some of the development was taking place. And what you can see here in the rock face is a bit of a face of a skull. So there's the eyes, nose, bit of mouth. This is the same picture more recently. This picture was taken just uh, under a year ago. And again, you can see a bit of the eyes, nose. The mouth is kind of caved in a bit. But it's it's thought that that could be very well the, the place of the skull. History has it that Jesus probably would have been crucified not up on the top, but down on the road where people can pass by and they could see. They could see the people who were crucified and they could see what was put on the sign above them. And of course, then they could hear what's being said. They could hurl their insults. And uh, what's interesting now is this place now, right down here, is actually a bus terminal. Here they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Later, knowing that it was all completed, so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. Then those of the other two. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
So it appeared as if those religious leaders who saw Jesus as a threat on their whole assassin power had won. By crook, they had rid themselves of Jesus and got the Romans to do their dirty work. On a different scale, it appeared as if Satan had won. A few decades ago, Joseph Stalin, the great Russian leader, identified a solution to dealing with problem individuals. He coined it this way. Death is the solution to all problems. No man, no problem. Seemed to have worked for those who opposed Jesus as well. Later, Joseph of Arimathea would ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this is a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane over here. And in the back, I think that's St. Peter's Church. And that's the location where they think that Jesus was questioned by, um, by Pilate. And where Peter, just outside there, had denied Jesus three times. On the right is a picture of the garden tomb. Uh, this is typical, what a typical tomb would have looked like. And this one's located just outside the city. Uh, it's near the place where he saw the, the, what looks like the skull in the face of the rock. Some people think that this is the actual location where Jesus was buried. Uh, other people think it's underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre which at the time would have been outside the gates of Jerusalem. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the strips and saw strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So this is just an illustration of the tomb itself. And so the other disciple would be John got there first, didn't go right in, but he kind of looked in. And so what you have here is a bit of an enclave when you go in, a little room when you come in. And then there's another little burial chamber here with three burial beds. So it is likely that Jesus would have been on this one because if you look in without going in, that's kind of the, the first one that you could see. The Jewish, sorry, then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The Jewish people believed resurrection meant a rising of the body, so to speak. It wasn't just the person's spirit rising out of the body. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus dies, we're told that many holy people were resurrected and then went out and appeared to the people. Jesus himself later appeared to individuals or groups of people uh, about a dozen times, if you count the, his appearing to um, Saul on the road to Damascus. Now, the tomb where they laid Jesus' body likely belonged to Joseph's family. In all likelihood, the reason that it hadn't been used before was because he was from Arimathea, not from Jerusalem. The tombs, these were tombs of the elite, of the upper class, the well-to-do. Now, legend had it that Joseph's wife was Joseph's wife was very upset with her husband using the tomb for Jesus, given its incredible value. And his response was, don't worry, hun, he's only using it for the weekend. <laughs> so it looked as if the religious leaders of Satan had won this. They, had, they thought they had rid themselves of Jesus. But then Jesus conquers death and secures the victory over Satan. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Romans celebrated big military victories with lavish over-the-top processions. There was a bar, so to speak, that had to be met for the Senate to approve a procession. For example, there had to be at least 5,000 of the enemy killed. The battle had to be on foreign soil. And the result of the victory had to result in an increase in the empire. So, the, Roman, or the members or the order of the Roman procession sometimes varied, but generally included the senators or the politicians of the day. They had uh, musicians, including trumpeters, who would just blow, those, blow their instruments really loud so they could just announce, let everybody know, we're here. Come and celebrate with us. Come and see how great we are. They had carts on which they showed off the plunder or the spoils of war. They had animals, uh, usually including bulls and oxen, which were used for sacrifice. Uh, if they found any rare plants or animals in the conquered lands, they would often display them. Sometimes there was art brought to glorify the battle. If there was an object they can bring, like a piece off a ship, or a ship or something, they might bring that and put it on display for all to see. They had standards to show the insignia of the winning of the winning Romans. They had captives. So those people who lost the battle, those who were still alive, were brought captive. So they would have the leaders, they would have the soldiers, and they might have their families all in the procession. So just to add to the humiliation, they were dragged along. There were various attendants. There's the imperator, or the general, and he was drawn on a a chariot drawn by four horses. 
Then came his family, some officers. The Roman soldiers would have come behind them. And sometimes there might have been people who were freed or liberated. So this was no little parade. This was a big, long procession. And, and these processions could go a day. They could go more than a day. They could go two or three days. The procession itself would start at the Port of Triumphalis. And it was a specific gate. And it would wind through the city. We're not always sure what route they took. And end at the Temple of Jupiter. There there would be a sacrifice to the gods. They would offer perhaps some of the spoils of war. And then there would be a big celebration. So one of the things that was interesting about the celebration was or the procession was that the commanding officer or the general received the honorary title of imperator from the Senate once they confirmed the victory and said, you know what, that's good enough, that's worthy of a procession. It's interesting to note that the root word for this is emperor. Now, the imperator wore a laurel wreath in his hand. He had One hand, he had the laurel branch. And the other, he had a scepter, and the scepter had an eagle on top of it. The person wasn't alone in the chariot, though. He might have some dignitaries with him, one or two dignitaries with him. Uh, what he did have, though, was a slave in the back. So the slave was behind him, kind of held a gold crown over his head, and he'd be whispering to him, saying, look behind, look behind. And the reason he was telling him to look behind was so that he can look behind and remember that he was a mere mortal, just like the people behind him. He wasn't actually a god. The city was decorated, incense was lit, and it was like the smell of victory for some, and probably the smell of doom for those who had lost. Once the procession was over, some of the captives might be publicly executed. Others might be used for sport, so-called sport, in the, in the arenas. And others were simply made slaves. None of the options were very pretty. In 2 Corinthians 2, we're told about a different triumphal procession. Here, the Apostle Paul is speaking about wanting to go to Troas to speak. But he doesn't go because he's not sure what happened to Titus, so he goes to Macedonia instead. In 2 Corinthians 2, from 14 to 16, we read, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? The imperator or general in this procession is none other than Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, who rose from the dead and conquered death. There's nobody whispering in his ear, look behind, look behind. He is God. This, people are going to bow down to him in, in recognition of that. There's no conscription in this army, though. We aren't forced to follow him. God could have simply created us to have a will to love and obey him. He didn't, though. That would have been like creating a world of zombies or robots. The God who created and sustains the universe saw fit to offer each of us the opportunity to know him personally and to have his spirit dwell within us. Those who believe in him 
those who have acknowledged his death and resurrection was for their sin and turned to him in, as their Lord and their Savior are in this victory procession. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew he was going to pay the price for our sin, not for something he had done, but for something we had done. Before he was crucified, he took Peter, James, and John to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is actually an olive press, and it's believed that the garden and the olive press were in close proximity. So it's little hard to see. This is, these are pictures of the same olive press, actually. That goes right into the wall on the side of the building. And it's got all these weights on it to go down and it gets let down and they press the olives down here. This is a basket in which the olives would have been placed. In Mark 14, we read this. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Just as Jesus chose to follow his Father's plan, so we too are called to do likewise and live in a way that would please him. We need to seek the Father's will to truly understand what he wants from each of us. The soldiers in the Roman victory parade had the freedom to either honor the general or they could criticize him. Some shouted praises, while others took the opportunity to be openly cynical. I would suggest that if we were to be in the latter camp for our general, we're actually not in the parade, we're on the sidelines. Those of us in the procession can, however, just through our actions, help draw others towards Jesus or inadvertently push, him, push people away from him. If we are to be the aroma of Christ that Paul talks about, or the fragrance of life, people need to see something different in each of us. Paul noted in Romans 12 that we're to be transformed, not conformed to the world. In other words, we need to be a little bit different from the world around us. It's not good enough to pay him lip service on Sunday when we're at church and then go out and live as if he didn't exist the rest of the week. Our lives need to reflect God's love every day in everything we do, wherever we are, whether it's at home, at work, at school, wherever it is, and whatever we're doing. First Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
The closer we grow to Jesus, the more like him we will be. We can, however, turn people away from wanting a relationship with Jesus if we don't walk the talk, if we gossip, if we spend more time talking than working, if we cheat on our spouses, if we trample on others to get ahead, if we don't refuse to, if, sorry, if we refuse to show love to those around us. I think you get the picture. If we don't demonstrate what we profess in our lives, then we're not going to be a sweet fragrance. We're going to be a stench. And nobody's going to believe what we have to say about Jesus. And chances are, they're more likely to remember the bad things than they are the good things. Now, having said that, if you're like me, you slip at times. However, what we need to be striving for is continual improvement. These processions were displays of power. The great general showing all that he had conquered. God's procession also is one of power. Our general, our king in this case, had the power to rise from the dead. God's power is also demonstrated in the changed lives because of what he's done and because of those who know him. Those in the procession show courage in the face of adversity. Courage to publicly proclaim Jesus. Courage to follow him despite possible ridicule, persecution, perhaps death. Paul was willing to do whatever was needed to make sure people knew about Jesus and he suffered through many hardships and trials to do so. We know he knew, however, that God could use his suffering to expand his kingdom. We probably won't go through the challenges that Paul went through, at least not very many of them. We can rest assured, however, there will be times when we will be challenged. Sorry, when we will be challenged in our lives, when things don't go the way we want, and we just cry out in pain or in frustration to God. Life is a journey, and God doesn't remove all the bumps. He doesn't smooth out all the obstacles for us and take the challenges away so we can have a nice, easy trip. God often lets things happen, but he's there to guide us through it. His power is revealed most when we realize we're at the end of our rope, we can't do it ourselves, and we look to him for help. The procession sometimes included those people who had been freed from the Roman army. As Christians, we've been freed from bondage to sin. The Bible notes we're actually slaves to sin. Through Christ's sacrifice, we've been freed. Our freedom is to be used to serve one another in love. We're to keep moving forward in and through God's grace. Actually, we're... We're to consider ourselves, the Bible says, we're to consider ourselves as slaves to righteousness. The Christian life isn't designed to be just a boring adherence to a set of do's and don'ts. Many of the religious leaders in Jesus' time did that, and they were so caught up in the little things that they missed the big picture altogether. They missed the intent of why some of those rules were there. I was recently reminded of how great people in the Bible failed to 
failed big time in certain aspects. For example, King David, he really failed big time in some aspects. Yet he was known to be a man after God's own heart. This doesn't mean that we're free to imitate some of the things that he did. We should be looking at each choice, each decision we make, and just asking ourselves the question, would that be honoring to God? Would God approve of that? Instead of just doing it and then asking forgiveness later. Sometimes God reminds us of our status relative to him and the importance of not letting our egos get too big. Paul speaks of such an experience in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, from verse 7, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations, there has given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. Many famous people, including church leaders, have been brought back to earth when a scandal of some sort was revealed. Maybe it revealed a hidden character flaw, a major character flaw. For example, how they treated those around them. Some of the people in the Roman procession were thankful. And they're thankful that they weren't at the end of the line or at the back of the line with the captives. As Christians, we're, to be, we're called to give thanks in all things, even the trials of life, because those bring us closer to God. And sometimes that's easier said than done, isn't it? We want to be in control. We want to be the ones steering our lives. We want to know where we're going. The general would sometimes give soldiers a quote-unquote bonus from the spoils of the battle. Sometimes they were satisfied with what they got. Sometimes they weren't. The Bible tells us all good gifts come from God. We're to be content with what we've been given and use those things to further the kingdom. We're to use the time, our treasures, our talents to just help others come to know Jesus. Instead of seeking to add to our possessions, we're to seek his kingdom and not worry about stuff. In other words, we focus on God and let him look after the material things in our lives. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 8, we're told, Godliness with contentment is great gain, and if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We're also told not to grumble or complain. God doesn't appreciate when we act like whiners. Our perspective influences the way we interpret things. Sometimes what seems like a lost cause turns out to be the opposite. We sang about that earlier, didn't we? When death was arrested and my life began. Earlier, we noted examples of things that may seem challenging overwhelming, even impossible in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9, Paul talks about some of the struggles that he went through for the church in Corinth. So what seemed impossible, never feel like this. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, 
struck down but not destroyed. The reality is that there's a spiritual victory coming. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present you with us in his presence. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we can and we should apply what Paul noted in our lives as well. The solution then is to fix our eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So on this day that we, the day that we referred to a couple of days ago as Good Friday, Jesus declared, it is finished and died on the cross for our sin. The perception is Satan won. The reality is Jesus is risen. He conquered. He rose from the grave and secured the victory that seemed to have been lost. God wants to have a relationship with us and he offers us that opportunity. We need to realize that Jesus died for us as individuals and let him be our own personal Savior and Lord. He's our general. I pray here that everyone wants to be part of God's victory procession. He is the one who deserves the preeminence or first place or the supremacy in all things. We're to reach out to show God's love to others. Our lives should be like a sweet-smelling incense to God and to others, the fragrance of life. We will experience challenges, trials, and suffer on occasion because we've chosen to follow Jesus. God does offer to guide us through these, however. These temporary things are just tiny. They're minuscule in comparison to the eternal destiny that awaits us. So in closing, may God richly bless each of you as you celebrate the victory Jesus won through his resurrection. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this grand truth that you have overcome through your Son, the Lord Jesus, has given all of us the victory. Sin has been conquered. Addictions ceased. Lives changed. Lord, some of us are still struggling. We pray that this might be a day of turnaround. That this might be the start of something new. That just as we watch the grass that is so dead become green and the flowers not visible yet poke their heads and beauty emerges, so too, Lord, may you make a fragrance, a beautiful, a beautiful thing out of our lives. That the Lord Jesus may be seen. That his love may be manifested. And that we may go out of this place saying, he is risen. And yes, the fragments may be sweet. And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name.